Now, um, everybody strap yourselves in, seatbelts on. They have asked me to talk about three, count them, three very complicated diseases with lots and lots and lots of information, each of which we could do a two-day symposia on in one talk. Okay? Y'all ready? <laughs> All right, I'm going to try to make this very practical, very clinical, and if anybody has any comments or, or ideas about some of the research that I may allude to, or, or we can talk after, after the session, okay? Let's go. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Uh, I, I do receive, uh, uh, receive research funding from a variety of sources, but nothing in regards to any of these diseases uh, in the last five years. Um, okay, you've all seen the objectives. Hopefully you will achieve your objectives. Uh, and again, uh, yell at me at the end uh, if you don't. Um, let's talk first about complex regional pain syndrome, uh, my favorite disease. I, I've studied this since I was a uh, second year resident. Um, and, you know, as everybody in this room knows, it's a very heterogeneous disease. We recently have got a good uh, criteria that I'll talk about. Uh, but it, it's pretty easy to figure out that you're in the ballpark. When you see excruciating pain, really terrible pain, in the context of autonomic disturbance, you're pretty much there. Now, we did bother to do the, the formal validation, and I'll tell you all about that. But this gets you about 90% within the ballpark, okay? But now, of course, I do encourage everybody to use the formal criteria where they exist in chronic pain conditions of all sorts. And I will tell you that the only disease that has had formal validation of a diagnostic criteria is CRPS. And it's actually been validated twice. So let's learn this criteria. There, there was an, an original criteria back in the day, and uh, in the for the uh, this is the Orlando diagnostic criteria, but we were trying to create a big umbrella to make sure that we brought everybody in uh, who had anything remotely like this. And then we said, but we'll do the research to to break out the subsets and and properly validate this later. Let's just get everybody under the umbrella so that we can study them. So there's some problems with this old IESP diagnostic criteria. And you'll see it. It's still out there. People are still talking about this. Uh, and I'll point out just a couple of the uh, problems, if I can get this to work. Um, the presence of an innoc uh, initiating noxious event or cause of immobilization may or may not be present. Sometimes it looks like it's spontaneous, so that's not really necessary. Continuing pain, allodynia, hyperalgesia, with which the pain is disproportionate to an inciting event. In whose mind? What does disproportionate mean? I mean, what is disproportionate to an anesthesiologist would be different to a neurosurgeon, would be quite different to somebody like me, an interdisciplinarian. Evidence at some time of edema changes to uh, skin, blood flow, abnormal pseudomotor activity, at some time. Because this literally means if you're going to apply this criteria, somebody will come in and say, uh, it was red and swollen and it's terribly painful. Boom, diagnosis, right? This was a problem. When people were using this criteria, everybody that walked into a chronic pain clinic was getting diagnosed. Um, so we had to do the math. We had to go back and say, all right, let's look at the signs and the symptoms that are associated commonly in the literature 
with this disease and actually interrogate patient populations to determine you know, what, is a, what is a good way to make, make, the, make the diagnosis? What signs, what symptoms, in what proportion? Uh, so we did all kinds of fancy statistical analyses. Uh, uh, I, I can talk about that afterwards, <laughs> uh, which means I'll have to make a call to my statistician. But, uh, but what we had determined is that there's four principal factors associated with CRPS. One is the pain factor. And this is where you're going to see the allodynia hyperalgesia uh, that these people prominently display. And you're going to have symptoms and signs. In other words, the symptoms the patients tell you, uh, you know, it, when I get in a, a warm bath, it's, it's excruciatingly painful. That would be a symptom of allodynia uh, versus the, the doctor coming up with a pin and, you know, poking the patient and, and the, pay, the pain increases with each poke or the, you hit them with the pen and they go running out of the clinic, you know, that would be hyperpathia. But so there are signs and symptoms, and it's important to elicit both, of course. Uh, the second factor is vasomotor signs and symptoms. The third factor is uh, edema uh, and uh, pseudomotor abnormalities. Uh, these, guys, these two things, they don't look like they're related, but they're certainly linked up statistically. So the signs and symptoms of, uh, of edema and pseudomotor abnormality uh, are the third factor. And then the fourth factor uh, shows uh, motor changes and trophic changes. This is the old nails, hair, and skin problems that you see in, in CRPS uh, traditionally. Now, if you have greater than or equal to three symptoms, greater than or equal to two signs, you will get a sensitivity of 0.85, which is pretty dang good uh, for a clinical test, and a specificity of 0.69, which is acceptable. Now, you can bump this up. This is a clinical diagnostic criteria. We bothered to develop a research criteria, which is sensitive to 0.95, uh, and actually has, uh, has decent specificity, but we could never recruit anybody for research. So nobody uses that anymore even in research, all right? So there you go. Um, this, is the di uh, this is the criteria that the IASP recently, only recently, has accepted. So it's the new IASP criteria. You'll hear it called the Budapest criteria because we did some of the, some of the early work uh, with this, with consensus groups in, in, uh, in Budapest. Uh, you know, as to the pathophysiology, I don't have time to really go into this, but, but like I say, it's a heterogeneous disease, and uh, it usually starts with some kind of injury or trauma out in the periphery, and this causes a barrage of afferent information, which is going to cause changes at dorsal horn and changes in the brain stem, and of course changes ultimately in the brain. We like to look at this as a regional sensitization phenomenon. But because it starts to hit the central nervous system uh, and you get central sensitization, people usually develop widespread pain. This is where you'll hear people talking about spreading CRPS. CRPS is not spreading. You're just, the central nervous system is just doing what it always does when it gets bombed with pain. Uh, and it makes people hurt all over. Oh, that's fibromyalgia. We'll talk about that in a moment, okay? Uh, but, but then, of course, the central nervous system is not just going to sit there and, and, and passively, you know, accept this. It's going to have a response. It could be a motor response, you know, fight or flight, run away, or specifically fight or flight along 
the efferent side. The efferent nervous system gets supercharged and, and you're going to get all kinds of vasomotor abnormalities, etc. So this is uh, just a, a, a brief look to explain all the different heterogeneous per, uh, permutations of this disease that you may see. Um, the treatment of this is simply said in two words, interdisciplinary teams. This is not a disease that you're going to be able to just treat it with drugs or shots or ketamine or whatever pops into your head or whatever your specialty is all about. You're going to need your colleagues. You're going to need your network if you're in family practice to treat this effectively because uh, people have a lot of biopsychosocial manifestations. And to ignore the psychosocial manifestations, you will fail. Forget about it. Don't bother going there. Okay? So this, this disease, more than any other chronic disease that I know of, really requires an interdisciplinary approach. And what the heck do I mean by that? Well, everybody knows what I mean. I put psychology up there first. Cognitive behavioral psychologists are... are the leaders in the treatment of this disease because people are so morbidly depressed. It's a horrible thing. They tell me it's like sticking your hand in boiling water and you can't take it out. It's just in boiling water 24-7. It's not going to make me happy. Certainly as a clinician, it never made me happy, but it's not going to make your patients happy. And to ignore that, you fail. Okay, so you bring in psychology. You bring in uh, our, nurse uh, our nurse educators. I turned all our nurses into to teachers, and they teach patients, you know, what the heck? Harden was off about serotonin? What? You know, and the nurses come in and translate and explain what the heck it is I was talking about. But we maintain good information as opposed to the 98% misinformation that's out there on the Internet about this disease, Okay. Um, MDs and DOs, of course, everybody knows what they do, right? Mm -hmm. um, occupational therapists are very important on the team uh, and quite distinct from physical therapists. Uh, can't go into the, that. Recreational therapy, get people moving, have to reanimate, have to get the part moving again, the regional pain. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that is to give people back something that they enjoy doing. They might reject return to work or work hardening, you know, because that's how they were injured in the first place. But they're going to love to go out and, you know, get back that fly fishing thing, which actually is a good motion for treating CRPS. So recreational therapy, if you can find one of those in the United States of America, anywhere, uh, get that person to help. And you, actually our OT, our, we had to train our occupational therapists when they the pay or shut down recreational therapy. It, it just doesn't get paid for. Social work, of course, and vocational rehabilitation. All this is critical. So like I've said, all chronic pain is biopsychosocial. CRPS is probably more so than anything else. So the treatment of this. Um, we've done algorithms and meetings. We always have fancy city names. So we did a lot of work at Malibu. Uh, uh, took us several days, and uh, there was only there was only. I, I'm a neurologist, but I I, I play a physiatrist, uh, a, a rehab doctor. There was one bona fide rehabilitation doctor, and and we had been at this for several days, and and um, I grabbed Angela and I said, step aside from step back from the the wine that everybody's drinking in this sponsored sponsored thing, 
And we were the only ones that were, were basically not hung over the next morning. So we turned this algorithm, which has now become pretty much the standard algorithm, into an interdisciplinary thing. Uh, because the, uh, our other colleagues, principally anesthesiologists back in those days, had not stepped back from the line. So anyhow, what we, what we ask, uh, asked to do, of course, is to reactivate people. And, and then when they progress from that, they can go into you know, things like flexibility, edema control, range of motion, uh, and all the way up to uh, the ultimate functional restoration, which is vocational uh, restoration. So the, the ad, I say the added, adage, legend, lore, anecdote, empirical truth that we all apply to this disease, and there's not a lot of good randomized controlled trials, I'll tell you, it's mostly empirical evidence that we have, uh, is to counter the kinesiophobia that these people have, the fear of using and moving the affected part. They're, they're, they're petrified. If somebody just bumps into them, it's going to cause excruciating pain, much less them trying to use it. And you have to counter that because reanimation of the part, normalization of use of the part is essential. And again, this is a deal breaker. If you cannot achieve this, you cannot help. You cannot let people just you know, never move the part again. It will never get better. Um, you know, we thought this was uh, uh, this is shutting the pain gate. Uh, you know, there's normalized, normalized input on large fibers, which, which resets the central nervous system. We don't know what the heck we're talking about, but we do know empirically that this is critical. And which of our interventions is best for this is the thing called stress loading. It's just loading up the joint with, with walking is great stress loading because you're putting weight on the joint and you're moving the joint. But, but with the upper extremity, you just get, get people to put weight on it. Uh, and then you, you, you also give them bags and load them up with weight, et cetera. But, but stress loading is, uh, it seems to be the most important physio-occupational type therapy, and that is the most important thing that we do, bar none. Forget the shots. You know, forget the drugs. Okay. Pharmacotherapy. Uh, for uh, how many people in this room are, are um, uh, medical uh, clinicians? Pretty much everybody. So this, this is, you know, this is the, mo the money shot, as they say in, in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, pharmacotherapy, there are no good randomized control trials. There just aren't any. So what we have to do is use our empirical evidence. Plus, you know, there's a hint. If somebody comes in with mild to moderate pain, you're not going to do something crazy like blast them out of the water with opioids. We would have done that in the late 90s, but now, of course, opioids bad, so nobody would, nobody would make that mistake now. So you might use simple analgesics, and you can consider even using some simple nerve blocks uh, uh, in this context to get people moving. Uh, if the pain is excruciating or intractable, you're pretty much stuck. You're really going to have to at least use opioids in the short run. Um, inflammation, swelling, edema, et cetera, you're going to use things that reduce the inflammation, swelling, and edema, like steroids. Uh, depression, anxiety, insomnia, that's about a 90% phenomena in CRPS. You're going to treat it or let it go? Well, of course you're going to treat it. We have 
very effective drugs for, for depression and anxiety, and you're going to use those early. <clears throat> uh, and of course, a lot of these drugs, at least the older tricyclic antidepressant, quadricyclic antidepressant type drugs have uh, great pain-fighting abilities as well. Um, significant allodynia hyperalgesia, you may consider using anticonvulsant drugs to, to really normalize and stabilize the, the regional uh, neuropathic pain uh, properties. Uh, osteopenia, consider calcium bisphosphonates. That's actually very uniform. It used to be one of the diagnoses of CRPS was to do an x-ray and you see this osteopenia. Profound vasomotor distu disturbance, you might use things that open up the, the vasomotor system like uh, calcium channel blocker. This is where you can do your sympathetic blocks, uh, et cetera. Opioids for, C uh, for CRPS is kind of interesting. You know, there is an allegation, and I'll talk about this tomorrow, that opioids cause hyperalgesia. CRPS is a disease that's characterized by hyperalgesia. Maybe a problem here. Now, I personally do not believe that opioids in humans cause hyperalgesia. But nonetheless, if, if you even have an inkling that that is true, or if you believe the <coughs> CDC that that's the case, and the FDA that that's the case, you may kind of back away from the opioid trough with these people. All right? Ketamine. You're all hearing about this, you know. Since we can't use opioids, what are we going to do? Well, you know, all over the country, you're having these little infusion clinics that are bubbling up, and they're infusing all kinds of stuff, like your bisphosphonates um, uh, or uh, ketamine. Now, nobody is, there's no randomized controlled trial, you know. I think that it's probably going to come down that there is a subset of CRPS that does respond well to ketamine. Uh, but, but, you know, then there's the controversies, high dose or ketamine coma. Nobody does that anymore, really, to speak of. You have to go to Mexico to get it if you're American because no, no hospital system will approve it uh, because it's just too dang dangerous and too many side effects and, again, no evidence. We'll, we'll take questions at the end, sir, if you don't mind. Um, Low-dose um, ketamine, uh, sub-anesthetic doses uh, are something of of great interest to me. I've never prescribed it uh, personally to a patient, but, but it is of great interest to me, but just mechanistically, all right? Uh, interventional. You know, this, this is the historical approach to CRPS. In fact, we used to think that the response to sympathetic block uh, was diagnostic, and then we started talking about sympathetically independent pain, et cetera. Uh, but the point is, if you have profound vasomotor disturbance, uh, and a lot of pain, it may make sense to consider a nerve block. Uh, and, and you want to have an algorithm in your head uh, where, you know, you have minimally invasive uh, stuff and then go to more invasive stuff and then ultimately, the ultimate intervention, which would be surgical therapies. There's, there's no reason to think of surgery for the treatment of CRPS unless you're fixing something that's maintaining that regional sensitization uh, that, is, uh, that is causing the phenomenon. Uh, spinal cord stimulation, um, uh, you know, the, a lot of people, this, you know, this is their business. Uh, I don't know if they're in the room here. Uh, but the point is there's been one randomized controlled trial uh, that was done in Holland by a third-year resident. Now, Dr. Kemmler worked hard and did a, a great job 
But what the heck? I mean, he was a kid, and he didn't really have any mentoring, and it was a highly, highly, highly flawed study. Okay? I'll just leave it at that. And even though he showed a statistical significant improvement at three months, when he looked at six months and when he looked at 12 months, it had essentially evaporated. And Dr. Kimmler doesn't work as an anesthesiologist anymore. He's a psychiatrist now, he thinks. Okay. Um, all right, so that's, that's CRPS in a nutshell. Um, I've got one that's even more complicated, and we have even less data about the pathophysiology and, and oddly enough, less information really about clinical significance of interventions, although we have plenty of statistically significant interventions. But fibromyalgia. What we thought when we first started studying this is that, again, it was a peripheral disease that was characterized by these uh, by these uh, tender points, sorry, tender points that you would push on. And of course, it was very logical. We have these points, so we'd go in and we'd inject the points. And patients would say, uh, I feel a little bit better. And then they'd come back a week later and have to get shot again and shot again. This is, I come on the scene as a neurologist learning pain management from anesthesiologists, being low man on the totem pole. I got to put these shots into these people that were coming in every week. And it was odd. I had these, these three or four month patients that were um, three or four year patients that were coming in, and I was sticking my needle through scar tissue. I said, wait a minute, hang on here. What are we doing here? Anyhow, it was a big, big controversy and revolution on my, uh, on my fellowship, which designated me to go hang out with the psychologist for the rest of my career. But <laughs> Uh, but, but the point is, it was, a, it was kind of a, it was a disease of the periphery. And then it became trendy to speak of it as a disease of central sensitization. And I do believe that this is the case. You have something, a trauma, a stress, an illness, which sort of flips the central nervous system into being more sensitive. Then you get pain out in the periphery, which drives the central nervous system, which makes it more sensitive, central sensitization. Good old-fashioned, that stuff. Um, and now, after many years, people are starting to talk again about the periphery. And I also believe that this is true because we, we've noticed that there's a lot of inference that it, it, it's kind of almost related to CRPS in the sense that you have sympathetic nervous system abnormalities in these people that can be treated to an extent with modulation of the sympathetic abnormality. Okay? And so... Here we are, right where we, right where we started with CRPS. It's this relationship between the periphery, the spinal cord, the central nervous system, and how the central nervous system speaks to the periphery, which is now pathologically altered. So you set up this vicious cycle, if you will. Uh, so that's uh, the uh, sort of an overview of what we're thinking now. It, it, it looks to be a disease of central sensitization and pathology that, it, that you see out in, out in the periphery that can be enhanced by uh, 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 the message from the central nervous system. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into that anymore. The clinical features of this uh, disease are, are, are kind of interesting. Widespread pain, I've already mentioned that. Remember, CRPS is regional sensitization going to, to widespread. Fibromyalgia it may show up initially as widespread pain. 
But this is, is clearly all the all the kind of poor diagnostic criteria that we have for this emphasize this widespread pain thing. Again, when somebody comes in, they hurt all over. Anywhere you touch them, it makes the you know it makes the pain worse. You're in the ballpark, and you can use whichever of the ACR criteria you prefer. There's two of them out there. Now here's something that's very critical. Remember, I keep telling you it's a biopsychosocial disease. Almost always, I would say in my, in my loud clinical experience, 95% of my patients that came to me as a researcher, yes, they were the very sickest of the sick, but 95% of them had a profound sleep disorder, difficulty initiating sleep, and usually early morning awakening and never feeling refreshed in the morning. There's an interesting aside. They took uh, Air Force recruits, and you know, they have to sleep deprive these guys and gals because in war, that's what they do. They just keep flying sorties. So they had to see how they're going to respond to sleep deprivation. A very interesting work that showed that about 50% of them got widespread pain after a week of depriving them from sleep. Perfectly healthy kids. And I think this is a big part of what's going on here. And, you know, that leads to a consideration of fatigue and stiffness. And now we start to overlap with the multiple comorbidities that you see with, uh, uh, with fibromyalgia. Um, and then the presence of tender points. We call these tender points to distinguish it from myofascial pain syndrome, which is trigger points. What's the difference between a tender point and a trigger point? Uh, well, I would say that the t trigger point triggers a, a sensory phenomena elsewhere, like a referred pain phenomenon. But I'm, I'm not going to quibble about these two names. They're a you know, you push on a place and they say, ow, okay? No, we really, no, we do that with algometers and we measure exactly how many kilograms per square nah, not in the clinic, right? So, but widespread pain is a defining feature of fibromyalgia, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what data set you look at. This, this, this is what's going on. At least this is how they present. And here's one of the, one of the criteria that required 11 of 18 points, uh, and you'd push on it, and the patient would say, ow, and that was the diagnosis. That doesn't sound very satisfying, but at least you had to examine the patient. You, at least you had to touch them. The new ACR criteria does not require that. It does not require a physical examination. So I, I yeah, wow, <laughs> thank you, Daryl. I'll, I'll allow comments, if not questions, early on. But yeah, I mean, it is kind of a wow, you know, that you're not going to examine a patient that comes in. I like the 11 of 18. Of course, there was a problem with that. When we, when we started treating fibromyalgia, people would come in and I'd say, oh, well, they've only got 7 of 18. That's not what they have. I've got to rethink it. But they put up these pictures on the, well, as soon as we got the, the Internet, and then all of a sudden patients were coming in and they had 18 of 18 points. <laughs> Don't know why that happened. Got to remember... You know, there's this, this perhaps overlapping in some cases. I mean, you can have ticks and fleas, uh, as one of my favorite rehab docs used to say. But myofascial is a regional post-traumatic disease of trigger points. In other words, as, as Travell told us, it triggers a sensory phenomena elsewhere, referred pain, as distinct from a diffuse systemic widespread 
idiopathic, usually not post-traumatic. In some cases, it is. Tender points, what the distinction there, but then de depression, insomnia. Okay, just to straighten that out. And there are approved medicines for this, not like the case of um, uh, uh, CRPS, but we do have drugs that are approved by the FDA. This is, you know, clinical significance. All of these have shown clinical significance, right? No. They've all shown statistical significance. And there has never been an adequate attempt to show clinical significance in fibromyalgia. There has been in diabetic peripheral neuropathy, but if I have any time left, we'll talk about that. All right. Um, so the three of these, there's, uh, there's two, um, uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine reuptake inhibitors. Uh, I don't know why they don't call, the, call these SNDRIs. They all have some level of, of dopamine um, um, uh, reuptake inhibition. Uh, but so these these new drugs, these trendy drugs, these drugs that you know you can uh, you you can still make money with, are the top two. And then the the, the top one, of course, is uh, uh, anticonvulsant drug. Everybody's familiar with all of these, I'm sure. Um, if you look at the systematic reviews, though, uh, the drug that stands out head and shoulders above all others is amitriptyline. Now, it's true that the, 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 the big systematic reviews actually were done before the SNRIs uh, came along. But amitriptyline has been the mainstay of treatment for this disease. I don't use amitriptyline. It's got a lot of side effects and issues and problems, and you have to worry about a bunch of stuff. It's, it's like any drug. Risk-benefit has to be measured. But amitriptyline works for fibromyalgia. And it probably works because it not only is a great pain reliever, maybe because of the sodium channel blocking thing, maybe because of that, that regional effect that I was talking about, um, but it also is sedative. And it's going to knock, you can arrange it for it to knock people out, and it fixes that sleep disorder, okay? Stage 3 and stage 4 sleep is down uh, in fibromyalgia, Serotonin initiates stage three and four sleep. Amitriptyline is a great serotonin um, reuptake inhibitor. But it's very sedative for other reasons too, like the anticholinergic effect. Cyclobenzaprine. What the heck is that? Flexeril. What the heck is that? A muscle relaxant? Well, no, of course, cyclobenzaprine is almost an identical molecule to amitriptyline. If you look at it, it's got the three, cyc three cyclic rings, and there's just a couple side chains different. It's the same drug. God knows how it got in the books as a muscle relaxant. But nonetheless, it works almost as well as amitriptyline. Actually, I should say it works as well in terms of the, of the meta-analytic reviews. Uh, okay, modest F. Those two are the only two that show good efficacy. Right? Modest efficacy, tramadol. Well, that's an opioid, right? Well, but remember, it has serotonin reuptake inhibition, okay? Uh, and actually a bit of nor norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. So it's kind of like a, a tricyclic plus opioid. And, uh, and this has been shown modest efficacy. 
And then you have the serotonin reuptake uh, inhibitors. Um, they don't really work all that well, in my opinion, because they're not sedative. They don't help with the sleep disorder. But here what you see is you're effectively treating depression and anxiety. Uh, fluoxetine, venlafaxine. Notice that all of these drugs that we're talking about are antidepressants, with the exception, of course, of, uh, of the uh, anticonvulsant at the bottom of the list. So these things are showing statistical significance, not clinical significance. And then weak evidence, I mean, you'll hear about these things. Is Dr. Tennant in the room? <laughs> Uh, you know, some of the things he mentions, uh, you know, they, they're not really working out well for, um, for fibromyalgia. This is the, probably the most important list that I've got about therapy for fibromyalgia. No evidence for efficacy. Opioids, corticosteroids, NSAIDs, benzos, all of this stuff, all of this stuff. So it's important to know what doesn't work and what is not appropriate to spend your time trying these things or at least trying these things first. Try the things that you know that you know have a best chance of helping the best percentage of patients uh, using meta-analysis. The only thing I like about meta-analysis. Alright, non-medical therapy, strong evidence. What is it? This is critical. This is important. If you're going to treat fibromyalgia, you have to get these people moving again. And this is a deal breaker. If these patients, if I can't get them up and moving and doing something uh, uh, cardiovascular or, or uh, aerobic exercise, forget about it. I mean, I actually wouldn't treat a patient that would not even attempt to do that. And sometimes I would have to even use things like opioids to make them comfortable enough to get them moving. But it's such an important feature, and as your meta-analysis shows, it, it's it's the one of the only ones non-medicinal therapies for cardiovascular. Uh, I'm sorry for uh, uh, efficacy. Patient education, that makes sense, but it's way up there with strong evidence. Cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, and this, this again is a lot of things like sleep hygiene and relaxation and stress management. Multidisciplinary therapy they kind of break that out as a, as a specific entity to study and, and of course it includes all of that stuff. Alright? Moderate evidence, uh, you can see it. Weak evidence, you can see it. And again, this may be the more important of the list, no evidence. What do you see there? Trigger point injections. So my entire Fellowship training was a complete waste of time, right? Right. Um, I, I I mentioned this in the in the 90s to a group at another meeting, uh, and a third of the audience got up and walked out of the room because that was their business was doing trigger point injections for fibromyalgia. Oh well, flexibility. <laughs> I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> uh, uh, flexibility uh, and exercise. Uh, flexibility exercise. I don't even really know what they're talking about with that. Uh, I won't bore you anymore with my, my stuff about um, uh, amitriptyline. Uh, you can read the literature uh, about the approved drugs. Don't take my word for it that they have shown sort of marginal statistical significance 
and have never shown clinical significance. And it's not that they don't know how to do that because the Neurontin trials, the original uh, gabapentin trials, were the first trials that we actually included a measure of clinical significance. It was just, it was just a simple measure of, you know, do you feel better or not? You know, a lot improved, a little bit improved, no improved, a little bit worse, and a whole bunch worse. That, was the, that is the measure of clinical significance, but nobody bothers to either do it or analyze it properly. So, so there's no excuses. I'm just saying that all we've got is statistical significance. Uh, yeah, and here's deloxetine. You can look at that. Uh, now, I put this back up again. Um, how, how much time have I got? Anybody got a, a clock on me here? 10 or 15 minutes? Thank you. Well, maybe I can talk a little bit about diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Um, you know, when, when I look at this, of course, this is, uh, this is a heterogeneous disease. I avoided it kind of hard as a, uh, as a researcher. I, I did some early studies of Neurontin with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, but it's, it's, it is very heterogeneous. I mean, it's, it's toxic, it's metabolic, it's, uh, it's exonal, it's, it's demyelinating, it's central, it's, you know, it's sympathetic. It's just got all of that. And, and, and to study something that heterogeneous with any specific drug, I mean, what, are the what is the likelihood that you're going to be able to prove FDA-like that you have statistical significance? And the idea is not much unless you have drugs that act centrally, okay? So the drugs that we have proved to the FDA that work for this, you know, they, they work pretty high up in the food chain. They're not going to work on those, those uh, neuropathic elements out in, out in the uh, periphery. They're going to work at the spinal cord or higher. Um, now, so here's the most important slide for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. The very best thing that you can do to treat diabetic peripheral neuropathy is to control the diabetes. Now, you know, that sounds sensible to everybody in the room, I hope, but who does this? Certainly not pain management specialists. They don't want to get involved in that diabetes control. But it remains a fact that if you control the diabetes, it's either going to stop the progression of, of the diabetic peripheral neuropathy, or it may, in some cases where patients have got pretty bad diabetes and they haven't developed it yet, it may prevent them from getting it. This is a fact. All right, there are FDA-approved drugs for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Here's the list. Oh, my gosh, it's the same list, isn't it? Almost the same list. Uh, you have the, uh, the SNRI, uh, uh, anticonvulsant, and you, uh, you throw in one, the, the lidocaine patch. Um, very interesting, uh, and a very interesting trial. I can talk to you guys about what, you know, what we did with this trial and why we did it, but it was, it was the first enriched trial that was ever accepted by the FDA. You may like that or not like that. Certainly, we liked it because we were, we were having a, a little dif difficulty proving anything uh, when we just did it straight up and slapped it on patients that had it and patients that didn't. For gabalin, uh, and now instead of uh, the, the tramadol, we have tapentadol, which again is a much stronger mu uh, uh, agonist uh, and, a, a, and a weak serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's kind of the, 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 um, uh, the opioid plus uh, again. And it may be that, that 
strangeness in the same molecule that makes it, uh, in my empirical experience, a little bit more effective for certain conditions. I can't say this for diabetic peripheral neuropathy, but I can say this for spinal cord injury pain, okay? Tepentanol, interesting drug. We go all the way back, historical, what have we done? Phenytoin actually works pretty dang well for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. How come we didn't use it more? How come it's the, you don't hear about that? Well, phenytoin is a vicious drug. I mean, I'm a neurologist. You know, we, we tolerated the fact that one in 2,000 patients were going to die of something like Steven Johnson syndrome because they had life-threatening epilepsy. But with chronic pain patients, your, your risk-benefit ratio considerations get a little different, okay? So that's why you don't see much about phenytoin in the effective, in, in, in the case of these trials. Uh, well, actually, this was conflicting data. We got one yes and one no up on the screen. Another, uh, another uh, anticonvulsant that's, uh, that's rough, almost vicious on patients. And, and this, this, it has e an even higher mortality and morbidity than phenytoin uh, is carbamazepine. Works well, but it probably is not uh, uh, appropriate or effective to use in people with chronic pain. So we go down the line. Um, um, in terms of the, um, the control trials that we see, what works? Well, we're right back again to the tricyclics and the, the, the quadricyclic drugs. Again, what are we treating? Is it the sodium channel blocking effect that sort of, that sort of stabilizes the, the, the poor, sick, damaged nerves out in the periphery? Or is it treating depression and anxiety? Or are they sleeping better? Or what? Okay? Uh, but, but certainly you see... Uh, a, a lot of information that would suggest we should be thinking sort of old-school tricyclic drugs uh, in these populations. And you'll note that most of this, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, a lot of this research was done um, in Europe because there's no money in these medicines anymore. Um, pregabalin versus gabapentin, you know, what's the difference? Why would we use the new one versus the old one, the expensive one versus the slightly less expensive one, even though one company owns both drugs. Um, uh, and the point is the pharmacokinetics are different. The, the pharmacodynamics are the same. The pharmacokinetics are different. That may be a reason where you would consider using one versus the other. And, of course, I have patients that respond to one and don't respond to the other. So, hard to say. Uh, but these, these medicines in general are a lot less toxic than the drugs I talked about just a minute ago. Uh, I wanted to put this up here. There's not a lot of really great evidence that, that, that topiramate is, is effective uh, uh, in, um, uh, in diabetic peripheral neuropathy, except in my empirical experience. And when I got refractory patients that didn't respond to anything else, uh, I certainly had some that responded to topiramate. So I thought I'd just put it up because I'm allowed to do empirical if uh, there's no real evidence, uh, um, uh, clinical significance otherwise. Uh, opioids, you know, the, the myth or the lore was that opioids don't work as well for neuropathic pain. We don't know exactly what as well means. It, it did seem to me empirically that I had to use higher doses of opioid to control neuropathic pain than non-neuropathic pain. 
but who knows if that means anything. But, but the point is, as Watson showed us, uh, they do work. And you have to push the dose high enough that you're really starting to tread on some of this, the, the, the risks and the side effects and the adverse events of, of opioid. Uh, but it is effective, at least in the short term. We don't know about the long term with all that hand-waving about opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Uh, topical medicines. I'd already mentioned the one that was FDA-approved, the lidoderm patch, or, or I'm sorry, the lidocaine-embedded patch. Oh, my God. We're... we're who, who's the uh, monitor in the room? I said lidoderm embedded patch, right? Um, uh, but, but, you know, all of this stuff, um, no randomized control trials. You know, one of the problems with topical research is that people have a tendency to just to throw two or three or four things into the cream and then smear it on and say, oh, look, it worked like a charm. And, and you know, that means nothing to me as a researcher. You know, do the study. Pick a formulation and study it. You know, would preferably do a single formulation and study that, randomized control trial. But, but to do all this, this hand-waving hinky business where you just throw about five or six or seven things into a cream and smear it on and then claim it's, it's the end-all and the be-all, that's not going to fly with me at least. But, um, uh, you know, there are some things that are, that are, are, are moderately well studied. Uh, this one. Uh, and then it, some of these things, you can pull them out. Um, the doxepin and other tricyclics in these creams, of course, they're potent, potent sodium channel blockers. And, and so there's clearly a rationale for, or for, those, uh, for those drugs. This one I, I never had any luck with, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, there was some evidence, uh, some weak evidence that, that it was effective um, in certain neuropathic conditions but you had to put it on four times a day, and it stung like bejesus for the first two weeks that you put it on and had to be completely compliant and you know, had to make very sure to wash your hands carefully before you uh, went to the restroom after applying it. And, you know, I got, I, got, I got almost zero compliance from my patients, okay? So what's the treatment for this heterogeneous disease, diabetic peripheral neuropathy? I mean, what's the most effective thing that we have? The interdisciplinary team approach. Of course it is. Because these people have biopsychosocial disease. They're depressed. They're anxious. They don't sleep. They've lost their jobs. You know, all of this stuff is relevant in this disease as well. And I won't bore you. I'll just flip through these guys again here. But it's, it's the same people, different stuff. That's all, all I've got today. This is, like I say, this is, a, this is the nutshell surrounding a nutshell of, of, of these three different diseases, but I'll try to answer questions at the end.